Who Interviews listeners. I'm your host, Fiona Martin, and this is a podcast where we amplify the voices of those defending Mother Earth and tackling the climate crisis. In this episode, I'm chatting with Melanie Rollman, president of Save Our Saluda, a nonprofit watershed organization dedicated to protecting and restoring the Upper Saluda watershed in upstate South Carolina. Melanie earned her Bachelor of Science in Forestry from North Carolina State University in 1990 and her Master's of Science in Forest Hydrology from the University of Georgia in 1996. Her areas of expertise include watershed assessment and planning, hydrology, water quality, erosion and sediment control, stormwater management, stream assessment, soils, wetlands, and public outreach and education. She lives on the North Saluda River in Marietta, South Carolina with her husband and two children and enjoys paddling, biking, hiking, and gardening. Our rivers provide us with drinking water, irrigation, biodiversity, recreation, relaxation, and unfortunately waste disposal. While our ancestors and previous generations may have disrespectfully interacted with our rivers, organizations like Save Our Saluda are working to correct the damages done and prevent further harm. While it's easy to point the finger at big polluters like wastewater plants and other industrial uses, agriculture is a big culprit of river pollution. Conventional farming practices like tilling leave the soil exposed, and rain creates water runoff of precious topsoil, heavy metals, and chemicals like herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizer. One initiative directed by Save Our Saluda is to provide funds to farmers for regenerative agricultural practices like cover cropping, no-till, and riparian buffers. Not only does this help our rivers, it helps the farmer's bottom line with improved biodiversity and better crop yields with fewer inputs. A win-win-win, right? Let's hear more from Melanie about the amazing work her organization is doing to save our Saluda. to Melanie Ruhlman, president of Save Our Saluda, which is a nonprofit watershed organization dedicated to protecting and restoring the Upper Saluda watershed here in South Carolina. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you for being with us today. How are you doing? Thank you, Fiona. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to speak to you about Save Our Saluda and about rivers and all the knowledge that you have. But to get started, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Save Our Saluda. Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, I'm a water resources specialist and a watershed manager um, with over 25 years of experience in water resources management, working um, through the private nonprofit, our private sector, the through industry, government, and now in the nonprofit sector. Um, I currently preside over Save Our Saluda, which, as you said, is a nonprofit watershed group here in the upstate of South Carolina that works to restore and protect the Upper Saluda watershed. And I'm also the watershed manager for Easily Combined Utilities, who, uh, working to um, protect source water um, above Saluda Lake, which is in the uppermost part of our watershed. And I became engaged with Save Our Saluda shortly after moving out to, to the North Saluda River with my family uh, over seven years ago. Um, and I've been working with uh, the utility for about four years. Um, and at Save Our Saluda, we were formed in 2008 in response to development threats um, that were threatening our trout waters, uh, in, in particular, a wastewater discharge that was threatening um, one of our many trout waters in our headwater areas. Um, and since then, we've become engaged in a number of other issues and initiatives 
um, which I'll talk about. But our main areas of focus are advocacy, monitoring, education, river cleanups, and projects. Um, most recently, projects that is most consuming. Um, and uh, just to talk a little bit about those areas uh, on the advocacy front, we engage in different uh, issues as they arise and development issues, um, pollution threats to the river. Um, some five years ago, we, with the help of Southern Environmental Law Center, we finalized an agreement with um, Duke Energy to remove over 3 million tons of toxic coal ash off of the banks of the Saluda River near Williamston. So that's a very significant and ongoing um, project there that's having a huge impact on the, the quality of our, our river there. Um, we have been involved in monitoring our rivers and we're very instrumental in helping to shepherd over, um, basically using the model in Georgia of Adopt-A-Stream, which is a citizen-based monitoring um, uh, program that teaches citizens how to uh, understand monitoring and to become certified. And so we uh, were very engaged in that in our early years and still encourage folks to become a part of that program. Um, and we do river cleanups with our partners at Foothills Paddling Club. Um, and most recently, we've uh, been very involved in a number of projects um, through a, a broad partnership that we um, have developed in the last four years to address the significant problem of sediment in our rivers and particularly Sulu Lake. Uh, and in addition to that, we, we engage with, in addition to that partnership, we engage with other of our local partners, state partners and regional uh, organiza like-minded organizations to address uh, issues that affect our waters, the flow and, and quality of our waters. So that in a nutshell is kind of what we do. Um, and we educate citizens through events, which have been uh, on the down low this year due to COVID, uh, but we try to make up for that uh, through social media. And um, like I said, we engage with our, our local partners on various initiatives. Um, and so that's a bit about Save Our Saluda. That's a, a big, big uh, area to cover for sure. Can you tell, go ahead. <laughs> It is a big area. In fact, our watershed is over a thousand square miles. It begins near the North Carolina, South Carolina border and flows downstream. Uh, the Saluda River does where it meets the Reedy River at Lake Greenwood. Um, and it drains land in parts of seven different counties and includes um, multiple municipalities, including parts of uh, Greenville, which is, I guess, the biggest municipal area. Um, headwater areas include the South Saluda River above Table Rock, uh, the Middle Saluda River near Jones Gap, the North Saluda River near Poinsett uh, Reservoir, and I will say much, we, we, we are very fortunate um, due to the work of a lot of our partners to have much of our headwater areas uh, in protection that are protected, and this includes the beautiful Mountain Bridge Wilderness Area. Um, so that in turn helps to in, in itself protect, protect our rivers. Um, and those are three rivers, the North, Middle and South come together um, above Saluda Lake, which is situated west of Greenville and become just the Saluda River. 
And from there, it flows over the dam at Saluda Lake and then uh, downstream in a southerly direction over five more dams, hydro uh, power dams, where then it meets the Reedy River at um, Lake Greenwood. Um, so you can see our uh, watershed by visiting our website at savearsluda.org and uh, look under our watershed and you can find an interactive map and it allows you to kind of surf around and zoom in and zoom out and see, um, see what our watershed is and where it is. Yeah, I love I really like the interactive map feature you have on your website, because even though we're both South Carolinians, I'm way down river from you. So um, I want to kind of set the stage because we do have uh, listeners from outside of South Carolina and also internationally. Um, the upstate of South Carolina is right in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, right at the um Appalachian Mountains, and you guys are right at the right at the bottom of those mountains. And then where I live is what they call the Midlands. We are God knows how many dams downriver from you guys, and then further downriver from me is going out to the coast, out to places like Charleston and um, Savannah and those places that people have heard of. And um, I find the history of rivers like really interesting. Can you can you tell us a little bit about you know how the rivers were used before and how they're used now? Well, I think they're, they were used um, in a lot of the same ways they are today. Uh, we rely up here on our rivers for drinking water, unlike in the coastal area that uh, is able to tap into groundwater fairly easily. Um, we rely on surface waters. So I guess that is the biggest, uh, by far the biggest use uh, of our waters up here is for drinking water. Um, the reservoirs above Table Rock and um, the North Saluda uh, Reservoir, also known as Poinsett Reservoir, are two of the three primary drinking water sources for the greater Greenville area um, that serves Greenville and uh, surrounding communities. Um, and then further downstream, Saluda Lake is the drinking water source for the Easley area. Uh, the river further down from that is drinking water for a number of smaller communities. And then when you get, and as is the Reedy, and uh, then when you get to um, Lake Greenwood, uh, that provides drinking water for Greenwood and, and for Lawrence County. Um, and as I mentioned, there are a number of hydropower dams. So uh, electric, you know, hydropower is another um, use of our rivers. Um, they're used for industrial uses as well. They, they fuel our industries. They um, are used for uh, discharge of our municipal and industrial wastewaters. So that they're the assimilative capacity that the rivers are able to provide uh, for treated wastewater discharges is another significant use. Um, our rivers are used for irrigation. Uh, they irrigate farmlands, um, golf courses, um, uh, and the like. Um, and they're used for recreation. Our uh, headwater areas are favorite uh, go-tos for trout fishermen. Um, and further downstream, there's fishing and boating. Uh, and of course, they also support aquatic life. In fact, a, a pretty rich uh, diversity of aquatic life. We have um, across the state of South Carolina, about 150 freshwater fish species. And of those, about a third of them, about 50 of them occur in our very upper uh, headwater, upper Saluda area. So we're very proud of that, that we're able to maintain that nice, healthy, uh, robust fishery up here that's indicative of, of good water quality. So for that and many other reasons, we feel like the Saluda is worth saving. It's, uh, 
it is it is our lifeblood. It's what you know fuels these communities, um, and it is uh, a wonderful resource to to have. For sure. Um, we've kind of hinted at it, but I'd love to, to explore a little bit further um, the threats to the Saluda and what um, what prompted the need for having organizations like Save Our Saluda. And there's also a lot of river keeper organizations uh, down where I live and then closer to the coast. Um, we've mentioned that the water is used for well drinking water, but then we also mentioned it's used for industrial purposes and um, wastewater discharging. So can you talk to us about um, these threats and threats I haven't mentioned that we might not even know about? And are these threats unique to the Saluda or are they threats that rivers around the country and the world are experiencing? Sure, sure. Um, I think a lot of our threats are not necessarily unique, um, just as uh, in other areas of the country, oftentimes in the past, our rivers were um, seen as uh, just discharge waste disposal. Uh, uh, areas. So uh, before the Clean Water Act came along, we did not have treated municipal and industrial uh, discharges. It was just a straight shot of those uh, pollutants into into our river system. Now, of course, we have um, requirements for treating those wastes um, before before they're discharged. But that does, so those are called point source discharges when it comes discreetly from a pipe. Um, So while through the Clean Water Act, we have eliminated a, a to a large degree, those threats, the, the threats are still out there. Uh, and um, uh, there's a lot of, uh, well, hopefully not too many, <laughs> but illicit discharges is, uh, of pollution is, is certainly a threat. But perhaps the biggest threat these days is just simply development. Um, we're, we're, we live in a rapidly growing area, the greater Greenville area. We always make the top of the lists of, of Um, fastest growing um, uh, areas in the country. And so with that brings, with that growth brings a lot of uh, challenges um, for our environmental resources, um, namely loss of our very valuable tree canopy and riparian protections. Um, As we replace those trees with paved surfaces then the problem of stormwater runoff becomes a very significant and exacerbated. And so with that runoff um, comes a lot of pollutants from, from the land, from our uh, cars, from um, you know, things being, uh, from, from our land use uh, activities. And so those um, non-discrete sources of pollution we call non-point port source pollution. Um, also in the past, I would say, when we were more of a rural uh, uh, agrarian area, uh, agriculture was certainly a huge factor in the quality of our rivers. And agriculture is, is rapidly being replaced by, by development. Um, it is still land use out there that we're very much tuned into these days and trying to um, address some of the challenges there with regards to protection of our rivers. And, um, um, but those are certainly... Uh, some of our, I guess most of our threats, uh, increased water demand with, with that increased growth. So just how, you know, how to allocate those water resources um, so that they're allocated and used in a sustainable manner. Um, and then how to, like I said, manage our, our wastewater discharges to all of those are significant challenges that our, our local and uh, state leaders are facing is in the face of rapid development. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing, um, 
it's uh so my connection with South Carolina dates back to I was born here in 1982 but moved in and out and it's always in my mind been quite a rural state but it's really really developing quickly especially where you are upstate Greenville I've seen many petitions going around trying to um urge local municipalities to be intentional with the development and avoid sprawl uh it sounds like you're on the on the front of that fight as well to try to for the water considerations um and uh but what was I going to go with that <laughs> but um i think it's something that people aren't aware of is what i was going to say is is uh we might not be forward thinking enough maybe in certain areas about the impacts of, of quickly things developing quickly. So you did also mention the agricultural practices. And that was one thing that uh, I was directed towards your organization about was some of the projects you're doing with farmers, because we don't think about agricultural runoff, not, you know, pesticides or whatever, but also the actual soil running into the Saluda. I know you've told me a story before about, or I read it on the website about the sediment coming into the river. Can you tell us like what that looks like and why it's dangerous, why we need to be worried about it? And then the projects that you're doing to try and mitigate the negative effects of agricultural runoff into the Saluda. Sure, sure. Well, um, when it's not raining, our rivers are pretty clear. Um, but typically in the Piedmont, and of course, we, we start in the mountains and, and drop down into the foothills and Piedmonts. Uh, and in the Piedmont areas, our creeks and streams and rivers, when it, after it rains, flow mostly brown, orange. And it is because of all of the sediment that is uh, inherently in those. A lot of that is legacy sediment that's left over from those um, uh, highly uh, 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 ag agronomic years back in the, you know, 100, 150 years ago when most everything was cleared and um, uh, row crop and cotton was king in many areas. Uh, so that left, left to, led to a lot of runoff then and that sediment, a lot of that is still in our our streams and rivers and valleys and being reactivated uh, and redistributed every time it rains and then superimpose on Top of that, when we have a developed area that is causing more stormwater runoff um, with higher volumes, um, more frequent flooding, then um, that activates those sediments in the uh, in the river system even more. Um, and add on top of that, you know, erosion sediment control issues related to to development. So. Um, all of those things combined, um, a lot of people will look at a Brown River and say, oh, where is, where is it coming from? There must be some development upstream. Well, there might be, uh, and there might not be. It might be because of some of these other confounding factors. It may be a combination of things. Um, so trying to sleuth all that out is, um, is sometimes challenging, but you, it's not too hard if you look at it from a broader watershed and land use perspective, which is what we've done with a lot of our watershed planning work. Um, we have been working on developing and have developed watershed plans uh, over the last few years for our very upper part of our uh, upper Saluda watershed above Saluda Lake to address this problem of sediment um, because it is not only a water quality problem for the streams and rivers, it chokes out aquatic life, it um, carries with it pollutants, 
Um, a lot of pollutants like to ride on sediment, your metals, your pesticides, your nutrients, um, but it's particularly problematic for the uh, reservoirs downstream, drinking water reservoirs like Saluda Lake. Um, they have been challenged with sediment uh, and uh, particularly in the last decades um, and some Eight years ago, they dredged the upper part of the lake. It's a 300-acre lake, and they dredged the upper 100 uh, acres and removed 366,000 cubic yards of sediment, uh, dredged it out and put it back on the land um, at a cost of $7 million. And today, only eight years later, about we estimate about 90% of that sediment is back. Uh, where they dredged. And so that is just not a sustainable um, model for, for management of that lake. And so trying to address those sort sediment sources at the source um, makes a lot of sense. Um, and right now it is, um, while we're looking at development issues and trying to track those as best we can and report those as best we can um, and work with our local officials on that, we also have... Um, been trying to focus on some of our uh, agricultural areas that um, inherently do um, uh, result in some sediment runoff to the river, um, particularly some of the more intensively farmed areas. Are, up here, it's our floodplain areas that are farmed. That's where it's nice and flat, the soils are rich, and um, so been, we've been trying to, through our watershed um, planning and implementation work, uh, and grant funded uh, program and our partner partnership have been working with farmers to provide cost share for soil conservation practices. Things like keeping the soil covered in between your cash crops during the fall and winter. In fact, we're, um, we're just now skating towards the end of cover crop planting season. It's been a very busy one. I'm, I'm very excited that this year we've got um, we're on track to have three times the amount of acreage and cover crop this year through our grant program as we did last year when we started. So hopefully we'll have some 300 acres in cover through our program. So that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and looking to do other things uh, uh, on these farmlands as well, like stabilizing the um, access roads and doing some other things, providing some other what are called agricultural best management practices um, edge of field as well as in field. And in doing so, it has been much of a, a great learning process for me, certainly, and um, how farming works, what the challenges are, what the constraints are to, to doing these things. I mean, our farmers know uh, better than anyone how to manage their land, um, but oftentimes they may not take these extra steps simply because they operate on such thin margins. Uh, and that, that is unfortunate. But fortunately, there are programs out there to assist. And um, DHEC's non-point source program is one of those. And so we saw that as a tremendous opportunity to tap into that. Um, and so several years ago, I started building this partnership to, to be able to do that and to be able to provide them a very nice incentive to, to come along and participate. So that's been keeping us very busy these last couple few years, um, in addition to addressing uh, other issues as they as they come along. Yeah. Um, but it's exciting. I, I love it. I love being able to work in my own backyard and um, trying to do things and put things on the ground um, that are going to make a difference to, to our rivers for 
hopefully for generations to come. Um, but I will say that the best part of it, it, it is meeting the folks in our watershed that are that are working on these issues and that have like or like-minded goals and aspirations, and seeing what we can do together to to accomplish um, our similar objectives and goals. Uh, it's been really great. So I hope we can keep it up here. <laughs> yeah. And I hope folks can find us and support us. Well, um, it sounds so we like you've do. built built a great coalition. And um, what I was interested or what's super interesting is, and it's quite interesting in the in popular culture right now is the, all of a sudden the awareness of what's called regenerative agriculture and regenerative agriculture practices. Um, and I've talked about it on the podcast before. We've had a couple of farmers on who practice regeneratively and um, the work that you're doing is supporting farmers to start regenerative uh, agriculture practices like cover cropping, which is exciting, and things like no-till and um, basically soil protection because all that soil is getting washed away on uh, as we're experiencing a tropical storm moving through our area. Um, I imagine that, that the Saluda is quite high right now. Yes, <laughs> it is. If I were to turn my camera just a little bit, you can see it right out, out of my window. But yes, um, uh, these storms and, and uh, flooding events are becoming more frequent and more severe. So um, it, it is uh, really for multiple reasons that these um, regenerative agri- ag practices are, are um, in the best interest of not only the river, but um, the land um, that, you know, the farmers hope to, I hope a lot of them keep and keep farming um, or to keep in place. And so our land d- doesn't wash away and doesn't become a liability to, to somebody else downstream. Um, we need to build resilience. And so that starts um, not necessarily by, uh, well, it starts at the end of the pipe, but it also starts at the at the source of, of a lot of these problems or a lot of these practices. And so, um, yes, that is the name of the game these days is trying to build that resilience as we move into a more unstable uh, environmental conditions mm-hmm. <laughs> with global warming and all that. Yeah, I mean, resilience, part of resilience is uh, biodiversity and part of creating biodiversity is like doing things like cover crops, right? And not these, um, you know, huge fields of corn, just corn or just soy. And I don't think, well, I I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, just due to the landscape in in the upstate that you might not have the millions of acres of corn that we see in other parts of the country or even down where I live, but... Um, it's exciting to hear that you're covering the soil. I, uh, go ride my bike quite a lot up in your area. And the last time I was up there with a few girlfriends, I saw some freshly tilled field and I was like, Oh, it makes me shudder. And here I am riding my bike talking about regenerative agriculture. It's a little bit sad. They were just like, what are you talking about? But let's briefly talk about the benefits of, uh, like cover cropping and no-till, uh, to the land and to the river and, and then whatever else around it. Sure, sure. Well, cover crops are beneficial for a number of reasons, you know, keeping that living root in the soil um, and keeping it covered will help prevent soil loss and help prevent erosion, uh, number one. Uh, And then it also, the cover crops, once you get into a cover crop system and stay with it, 
you know, they can't expect uh, the world to turn around in one year, but once they stay with it, they can see some significant um, benefits to soil health, increasing the soil carbon, increasing the, um, the biota in the soil that, that make the, the soil healthy and help give us um, better, uh, healthier um, uh, crops, as well as uh, more resilient crops, more resilient to to a lot of diseases. Um, and they've also been able to show here in South Carolina with some uh, trials that these cover crop systems can, uh, in addition to these other benefits, provide a, a financial benefit for the farmers by decreasing their inputs, their needed inputs like um, lime or fertilizer. And so that can then lead to, you know, of course, increase in the bottom line, which, um, everyone wants to see. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it's, but there are challenges to it too. You know, a lot of our farmers up here, we, they don't get their crops off until so late. So trying to just, you know, manage the, the timing of things and trying to get everything done in time and so that you can, your crop can get up and going before, before the frost sets in. That's a challenge. Um, another challenge is simply having the right equipment and the right know-how um, and so our grant has been able to, to purchase some equipment um, that we're donating to our local soil and water conservation district to make available to our local farmers. Um, so we hope that's going to help some. Um, but yeah, those are some of the things that uh, we've been working on to help keep soil out of our rivers and keep our water quality protected. Yeah. What are the top cover crops that you're getting the, the farmers to plant? Uh, cereal rye is a strong one, a popular one. Um, crimson clover. Um, some farmers are trying um, tillage radish. And tillage radish puts out a deep tap root that can help break up. A lot of times our soils and our floodplains are very, uh, they've, they've been worked a lot. And so they're very compacted. Um, so once they get compacted, then they can't infiltrate the rainwater as well. And so that just, you know, compounds itself. The runoff uh, will increase in compacted soil. So that tillage radish can help break up that subsoil and give you that, um, uh, increase your, improve your soil structure. Um, winter wheat is another popular one. Um, those, are, those are the ones that we've been putting in. But there's lots of others, and I uh, encourage folks to just uh, farmers, if you're listening to, you know, maybe you don't want to take the, the leap and do your entire field this time, but maybe just uh, go, try a section this year or a couple of rows and just see how it goes. And that's what a lot of this is, is just trial and error and seeing what works best. And if something works, maybe we'll try it again next year. If it didn't quite work, we might try something a little different next year. It's uh, definitely... It's definitely exciting to hear these programs are out there because, as you mentioned, um, you can't expect change in one season. I mean, farming especially is a multi-year, multi-generational type of business. And uh, a lot of the farmers are running on incredibly tight margins. And a lot of that's because, like you said, the inputs that they have to put in to be able to grow a crop and then sell it. And the inputs are the seed, the equipment, the herbicides, pesticides, the fertilizer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I just saw on social media this week from Farmers Footprint, which is a nonprofit 
promoting regenerative agriculture to farmers about a cotton farmer in Arkansas who started exactly as you said. Um, they were he inherited his family farm and was on the verge of bankruptcy and didn't know what else to do and started with one little section of their land using a cover crop and. And the next season just expanded, expanded, and it saved his farm. But, you know, to know that there's organizations like yours out there helping move that process along is is encouraging for sure. Another thing we're trying to um, promote is, I mentioned, is riparian protection. And that is keeping a woody uh, root, woody vegetation on your waterways. That even includes the little tiny small, maybe intermittent uh, waterways, um, but particularly the larger creeks and rivers, um, because these big storms, what happens if when oftentimes farmers will um, farm all the way up to the edge and with and leaving no trees or shrubs. And so when we get these big storm events, uh, there's nothing holding the bank in place. Uh, and so they get really wiped out. They lose, they, they physically lose land. And they uh, oftentimes after we had a really um, big, I think a historic flood last February and, and April were both historic um, uh, precipitation and flooding events here. And a lot of uh, areas experienced significant uh, stream bank loss. And so we're getting a lot of calls um, for assistance with that. Um, and we're, we are... We do have some projects lined up for that, um, but I will say it's extremely, extremely complicated and expensive to, to go back and get your spring banks put back in place. You may not put them back in place exactly like they were, but uh, I will say an ounce of uh, prevention and protection there is worth uh, um, a ton of, of restoration. So, um, and that the same can be said, whether it's in a rural setting, an agricultural setting or an urban setting. Oftentimes people like to clear out all the vegetation so they can see the pretty water, so they can see that flowing stream or river or pond. And while I understand that, that mindset, it is um, not as protective as, as leaving some vegetation there to help hold everything to put in place, help provide some, some shading to the water, which is particularly beneficial in our trout areas, um, and to provide, of course, habitat for, for riparian uh, ecosystems. There's lots of reasons to, to leave riparian areas intact, but mainly, uh, and most significantly, is to help protect our stream banks and keep them from washing away. Um, so riparian protection is uh, something we're really trying to push. Um, both through voluntary efforts uh, as well as through um, local ordinance. Um, and it would be great if we had a state buffer law, but we simply don't. Other, other states do. Um, and some local jurisdictions have um, riparian buffer protections. Um, we Parts of our watershed do and some don't. So um, that's something we try to educate folks about is the importance of protecting these riparian corridors. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the, the ecosystem around the rivers. And uh, I was, I'm thinking of a previous guest. We had Chris Jones, who's a regenerative dairy farmer in the UK, but he's also very involved in trying to bring beavers back to the UK. Is there any sort of beaver activity going on in the Saluda? <laughs> 
Oh, we may not want to talk about beaver eggs. Uh, they're like, it's like some, yeah, there's two beaver camps. <laughs> relationship. Yes, they certainly beaver are very beneficial for many reasons. Um, in areas when we're, where we're trying to get riparian trees established, um, they, they, are, they, are, they provide a challenge. So mm-hmm. they, they like to eat our trees. So <laughs> we do have to protect our trees and um, try to stay ahead of them and, um, and all that. So I don't know of any efforts where people are actively trying to bring the beaver back. Um, uh, I'll just leave it up to the individual landowners to decide if they're good or bad for their, (laughs) for their area. So it's, um, it's an interesting um, uh, dichotomy of issues there. Yeah, yeah. I um, I used to uh, a while ago work for a environmental mitigation company, and they, I think they were anti beaver. <laughs> so you know, I can understand that. It's interesting how it's happening in the UK because they completely wiped out their beavers by 1500. There were no beavers, and so now they're experiencing uh, some of the effects of climate change of being flooding, and so bringing the beavers back they're creating the wetlands so that it doesn't go all the way downstream and flood out the town. But there's a huge amount of education going into that because, you know, beavers can be destructive in some ways by bringing down trees, but um, I think they're pretty cool. I don't get to see beavers up close. I don't <laughs> like to. <though. laughs> what can we do as individuals to be better stewards of our rivers and help organizations like yours save our Saluda? Well, I would say, you know, first to try to become educated and informed on whatever issues related to the rivers, whether it's river flow, water quality uh, that interests you. Um, If you're in our area, find us and support us, please. Uh, If you're elsewhere and watching this, you know, there are lots of river organizations out there. There might be one in your area. There's a lot of riverkeeper organizations out there doing wonderful work. Um, there's other organizations that are doing work that's, that's equally as important, uh, and that may or may be, uh, just as impactful to rivers, uh, things like, uh, your keep, whatever, beautiful or clean, um, trash is another thing we didn't talk about with, that comes with people, people bring their trash and we have, uh, wherever we have people, it seems like we have a tremendous amount of trash on our roadsides that makes its way to our rivers. So getting engaged with local organizations that um, do trash pickups, trash cleanups, um, you don't even have to be involved in an organization. You can just go out and, and pick up some trash on your own, particularly around a, a bridge uh, or along your favorite creek, or maybe you have a park next to a waterway that you enjoy going to. Um, if you go out for a hike, you know, take a bag with you and just pick up trash uh, on the way out. Um, learning how to monitor our rivers. Maybe you're interested in, in water quality monitoring. If you're in South Carolina, um, you can tune into the Adopt Stream program through um, Clemson University um, and learn how to monitor uh, your rivers. Um, if you have a stream or a river or a pond in your backyard um, and you have Maybe it's all cleared out. Consider planting some native vegetation along the edges and learn, learn what native vegetation grows best in your area. I'd like to see everybody get excited about native vegetation and the benefits of that in their backyard. I think there's a tremendous benefit there. We can't, we can't regulate everyone um, and folks need to take it upon themselves to, to do what's best in their little piece of the world 
um, whether that's planting native vegetation or maybe shrinking the area that they mow and leaving some of it natural. Um, those are some of the sorts of things that folks can do. Um, become engaged in local issues. You know, find, find these groups, find out what they're doing. And when there's a call to action for a particular development ordinance or something like that, to become engaged. Maybe you have aspirations to uh, be a, a leader. We need good political leaders at our local and state levels to, that are willing to listen um, to these issues and act on them. So there's a number of things that that folks can do to help protect the environment around them, including our streams and rivers. Yeah, let's get excited about natives because there's not many people who know about this. And I didn't know about this until I started looking into it because I kept reading planting natives. So then I was like, okay, um, I'm trying to build soil. We have a little bit of an erosion problem in our backyard. And so I'm going to be a regenerative gardener and build soil and, Great. you know, doing like uh you know, I found horse manure for free and then we have plenty of leaves and, and stacking it up and, and then it was time to plant something. And what's interesting about where we live, because we live in a colonized land is a lot of the plants that we think are native are not native, like all of the crepe myrtles and the honeysuckle and the mimosa trees and just tons and tons and tons. And I start had started reading to try and uh, first learn what was around me. And so many of them come from Europe, all these weeds, which I don't like the word weeds, nothing's a weed. If I can do something with it, we're cool. But it's because the colonists brought all this stuff over with them. And in on the other side, we lost a lot of native plants, which is sad, but also reduced our biodiversity and the native animals that lived here. So how do we go about finding out what's native and how do we, and planting it? <laughs> Maybe you have a native plant society in our, in your area. South Carolina has a native plant society. You can tap into them. Um, there's tons of resources online. Just start Googling native plants. Um, let's see the USDA there. I use their plants database. Um, weekly is like the Bible of, of plants. If you really want to get into the science of it, but there's a lot of resources online and information out there and groups that are uh, specifically um, oriented to native plants. So just wade into it and start asking questions. Um, find your, your local folks that uh, are experts and um, get engaged. And uh, there's a lot of online things, uh, the little apps where you can, you know, find out what a plant is. Um, your local extension folks are, are a good resource as well. Um, but it is exciting. I've, uh, I've always liked gardening, um, but it's really only been in the last, uh, I don't know, 10 years or so that I've really tuned into the, the benefits of native and I've become kind of a, you know, an anti, <laughs> if it's not native, I don't want it, but I'm trying to mellow a little bit because sometimes, you know, you've got to fight your battles. Um, but I have that battle daily with my husband. So it's an internal house battle where I'm like, before we plant this tree, is it native? And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a challenge to our, um, our, our riparian restoration projects. We do try to put in native uh, trees and shrubs. Um, but oftentimes before we do that, we have to clear out all of the exotic invasives first, particularly kudzu. Mm -hmm. that, one, that one is a battle worth fighting because it will strangle um, it will strangle your trees and shrubs. Um, wisteria is another horrible one. I, I could go on, but um, yeah, 
we love our natives and they're, they go hand in hand with, with our watershed uh, and restoration projects. Mm-hmm. I love natives. I have to, I, I told you before, I am dying to get a pawpaw or two on our property. Excellent. Yes. We love the pawpaws. I've planted them. I try to plant them wherever I can. We've um, we have them at a number of our sites and my husband actually goes out and he hand pollinates our pawpaw trees in our yard. <laughs> and then we keep our fingers crossed that the raccoons and squirrels and possums don't get them before we do. Because <laughs> once they figure out they're there, they're, they make a beeline, but they are they're, they're a great riparian tree. They're actually one of my very favorite because the beaver don't like them. Uh-huh. Um, none of the sites that I manage have, knock on wood, have have I had any beaver damage to any of our pawpaws. Um, so they're, they're a wonderful native riparian tree that um, is not as common maybe as it once was. And a lot of people aren't, don't know about it. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Definitely Google pawpaw. I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't hear about it until I started trying to figure out what was native and there's some big pawpaw champions in the U S and it produces from what I've seen, I've never eaten the fruit or seen it in person, but like lovely little oblong fruit that are kind of like a, I hear it's like a mix between a mango and a banana. Is that the right way to describe it? Yes, it is. It's very custardy and um, it's delicious. We like it over vanilla ice cream. Oh, nice. I'm like probably what, five years out from having a fruit come off a tree like that, but I live in hope. (laughs) Another thing that folks can do and that we work, we not only work to restore, but we work to protect. And so we help, we work with some of our partners and help identify areas and lands that are uh, worthy of protection through, um, through permanent uh, land trusts uh, or easements. And so finding, you know, if you have a local land trust in your area, um, find them, support them, um, because protecting some of our most sensitive lands uh, is a huge element of of long-term watershed protection. Yeah, that's great. How do do we find uh, Save Our Saluda online or elsewhere? How do we support you? Oh, great. You can find us at saveoursaluda.org. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, you can email me at info at saveoursaluda.org. And um, yes, thank you for that shout out and for this interview and for having me. This has been really wonderful. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited to have been connected with you. Um, are there any big events or projects coming up in the next little while that you want to highlight for us? Well, um, we have been putting the brakes on our volunteer uh, events just because of COVID, Um, but we do have some projects coming up in the winter months, uh, some tree planting projects, and so you can watch our website. We have a a tab for volunteer events, um, and we're going to be doing, we will be doing a call out for volunteers, and we'll we'll do, you know, safe, socially distanced, um, protective uh, volunteer. We, We won't we will limit it and uh, it will be outside. So we'll, we'll do it safely. But that is, that is coming up. Um, our fundraiser this year is we're just going to be looking to Giving Tuesday, which is December 1st. Mm-hmm. So um, please, if you're compelled, um, you can give it any time. But we're doing a, a nice drive um, for, for December 1st through the Giving Tuesday to try to fundraise for, um, for our organization. Excellent. So for any support that you might be able to give there. 
Yeah. And we'll definitely link to everything in the show notes and, and have it on our social media. So keep an eye out for that. Um, any closing thoughts, Melanie, before we wrap this up? Um, just take this opportunity while um, things are maybe a little slower and a little closer to home to, to look around you and uh, explore the environment around you and try to notice things and um, figure out what um, what little thing you can do to, to make a difference and to help protect uh, the world around us so that we can um, have a nice, clean, sustainable future for future generations. Definitely. And as you mentioned, you know, an ounce of prevention is much better than trying to fix it on the back end. And a huge part, as you mentioned, and other guests have mentioned is, is uh, looking around, seeing what's around you, appreciating what's around you. And I think as things are slower, just as you mentioned, is a great time to do that. So I appreciate you echoing that message. It's an important one. Get out there, read, try and what's that tree in your yard, look it up, figure it out. There's tons of apps and you might end up down a rabbit hole of, you know, planting pawpaws like, you know, a year and a half later when you figure out that all the trees in your yard are invasive species. (laughs) Or maybe you'll, you'll take it upon yourself to get rid of all of that English ivy that's been growing up your trees. Yeah. Um, yeah. You never know what it <laughs> Exactly. Well, Melanie, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, we will, like I said, link to saveoursluda.org and uh, give a shout out on Giving Tuesday to help raise some funds. You're doing great work to um, with farmers, with, you know, trying to make sure development is is intentional or at least uh, cognizant of what's going on and save saving our waterways just, you know, for people, for animals, for the planet. And we've uh, briefly mentioned, you know, with climate change, there are more events, flooding events, rain events that are all, all this is connected and it's going to affect us. So it's best if we can try and get in front of it as much as we can. So I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Sure. And thank you for, for your podcast and for your interest in these issues and, It's really great to see folks like you um, helping to connect us. Yeah. Well, thank you, Melanie. Have a great rest of your day and we'll be in touch. Thank you, Fiona. You too. All right. Bye. Melanie for telling us the great work that Save Our Saluda is doing. You can contribute by visiting saveoursaluda.org. You can support the eco-interviews and our mission to explore different facets of the climate crisis by sharing this podcast, following us on Facebook and Instagram, or donating via patreon.com forward slash eco-interviews. Any contribution is appreciated, whether it's leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or contributing monetarily via Patreon.